Welcome back to the Spirits Guide Podcast. I am Rich, your guide to the intoxicating spirits world. This episode, this episode's a fun one, you know, as they all are for me. It's another one where, you know, I sat down and I was like, oh, I can, it's going to be an easy one. I can just bang this episode out. There are things I love, some things I've had before. It's going to be a really easy one. But, you know, I should do a little bit of research and, and see if I can get some extra tidbits. And then I find myself in a rabbit hole going, wow, this is more than even what I thought it was. And I love that because, I don't know, the the joy in it is always the journey for me. Uh, and so when I sat down to do, you know, to talk about my love affair with Sherry, and no, it's not a, a pretty lady. It's a style of wine, and it's a, a style of wine that's delicious. But it's also the barrels used to age that wine, then get reused to finish or age things like scotch, uh, American rye, American single malt, tequila, rum. And it just adds this incredibly decadent extra layer of flavor. And I am a sucker for anything that is sherry finished. And if a sales rep comes in and says the words PX, I uh, just my knees buckle. I'm a sucker for it. So, you know, again, I thought this was going to be an easy one. These things I love, things I love to talk about. And then I started to do a little bit deeper of a dive and realized how fascinating the origin story of these sherry finished whiskeys are in, in the actual concept of making sherry. And it's just it was a lot of fun to get into that rabbit hole and learn more about it. And at some point, uh, I'm going to do a whole episode just on sherries because it really is maybe the most fascinating wine, really, uh, as far as you know, variety of styles within that style. The history, how far back it goes. It's just it, it's great. And, and the wine is fantastic. And what it does to spirits is well, a lot of you guys know it's pretty, pretty special. Uh, but before we get to that, you know, a lot going on in the spirits world in the last week. Uh, first up, we talked about Jackie Zykin leaving Old Forester uh, in the last week or two. And we thought that that was going to be the big deal with Jackie Zykin. And, you know, what was she going to do next? And it didn't take us long to find out. Jackie Zykin is paired up with a couple of other investors and a member of the Neely family, which is whiskey that we don't get up here in Massachusetts. Uh, but I read a lot about it on a lot of online sites. Uh, and the four of them are starting a brand called Hard Barn. <clears throat> I've got a bad case of the coughs lately. Um, Hard Barn is their new brand. And apparently they're going to have a release out by the end of the summer. So, I mean, this sounds like it's been in the works for quite a while. It's amazing with, you know, the way online chatter is that this has been kind of a secret and nobody knew about it for a while, uh, but it, it is upon us and they're not sourcing MGP juice either, which is fascinating to me. Uh, the Neely family and their whiskeys, again, it's a big deal down in Kentucky and I've read a lot about them. They've been making juice all along for their own brands, so they're kind of sourcing some whiskey from basically they're not even really sourcing it. One of the Neelys is part of this group and they're using their own whiskey to start this brand. So uh, I look forward to trying it. Hopefully it is 
hopefully it's not one of these elitist brands, you know, as much as I respect Jim Rutledge, you know, you, you leave four roses and you come out with cream of Kentucky and it's a hundred and something dollars a bottle, Marianne Eves with all her sort of, and I'm sure that the, you know, the whiskeys are all good. They're just, they're not geared towards, you know, what bourbon drinkers and whiskey drinkers were supposed to be. You know, these were working class people and cowboys. And I've talked about this before. Uh, it wasn't something designed for the elite. Um, but that seems to be the direction that all these guys are going. You know, uh, Marianne Eves, Jim Rutledge, uh, Greg Metz, even with the old elk, as good as those whiskeys are, you know, they're hitting the market at an established higher end price point. Uh, I forget the guy's name, but the guy who started Chicken Cock. Uh, obviously, Kentucky Owl, another one of those sort of elitist brands that are coming right out of the gate. And they're not targeting, you know, working class people or people on a budget. They're targeting, you know, elitist people who want to be kind of on the trend of what's going on in whiskey. Uh, but all the best and all the luck. And obviously, Jackie's palate is great. And I did like that. Uh, in the interview, you know, where they asked, you know, are you going to have anything to do with distilling? And she said, absolutely not. My palate is my power. Uh, and so her title is Master Blender. Uh, again, Hard Barn. We'll be looking forward to that. Uh, Jack Daniels announced that they are doing a special Koi Hill release. Uh, these are barrels that they found when they were sourcing last year's, you know, single barrel Koi Hill release. And some of those whiskeys last year famously were hazmat whiskeys. Like some of them got over 140. And I had heard this from some friends at Brown Foreman a few months ago that they wanted to do this and they wanted to have a release. The hard part with them releasing hazmat whiskeys is, you know, the whole concept of hazmat means that in order to transport it, you need a truck that is hazmat certified. It has to have that hazmat sticker on it to transport this juice. So as much as they wanted to do a sort of wider hazmat release, shipping the stuff across state lines is incredibly difficult because of the proof point. <clears throat> so for that reason, in large part, uh, these are only going to be available in Tennessee. So uh, if you're out there thinking like, hey, I'm going to email Rich or I'm going to call Rich or I'm going to stop by the store and see if he can get any of this. I'm telling you guys right now, I cannot. It is a Tennessee only release. The story on it is that, you know, when they were sourcing the barrels for last year's release, they came across these. And because of the proof points, they weren't going to do them as all single barrels. So they blended them all together. They were all hazmat barrels, but they all got blended together. And then they were bottled in um, varying degrees of proof point, I think from like 140 up to like 144. Um, so they're not even though that Koi Hill was a single barrel selects bottling, uh, these are not single barrel. They're just a, a combination of single barrels uh, bottled intentionally at varying proof points, but all in the hazmat, which is over 140 level. Uh, what else we got going on this week? Redbreast Kentucky Oak. Uh, <clears throat> I just had somebody reach out to me this week and ask me if I'm getting it. I don't know if we're getting it. Uh, they're doing uh, sort of an American Oak series, and this is the first release in that. It's supposed to be MSRP around 100. You guys know how much I love MSRP, almost as much as I love Allocated. Uh, but I've got to expect that there's not going to be a ton of it out there. Uh, I will be working on it. 
stay tuned to the Wachusett Wine and Spirits page to see if I get any in the store. And if I do, I'll post pictures of it up on my Instagram as well. Uh, and lastly, Michter's. <clears throat> Michter's has announced that they are not releasing a 10-year bourbon this year. So, guys, again, as we get towards the fall, just understand, don't come in asking me if I have any Michter's 10. There is no Michter's 10-year bourbon for 2022. Uh, they have announced that they are not putting it out. They're saving it until next year. I'm pretty happy with that, actually. Uh, and I'm sure if Johnny Pintglass, if you're out there listening to this, you'll be happy with it, too, because we both agreed that Michter's 10 last year was incredibly underwhelming. They could have saved that release and not put it out at all. It just good, but not for the money and not for what I had tasted in previous releases of that. Uh, that was always my absolute favorite bourbon until last year. And I was like, Ooh, what, what happened? Something fell off. I don't know if there's a different blender, weird batch or whatever, uh, but it wasn't great last year. So if you didn't get any and you're like, Oh, I missed out. No, you didn't miss out. You probably saved yourself 150 bucks. And if you're looking for it on the secondary market and you do come across it and somebody wants like six, 700 bucks for hard pass, not worth it. Wasn't great last year. If you can get older versions of it and you're willing to pay up for it, that's fine. But last year, don't waste that money. Now, instead of releasing 10 year bourbon, uh, they put out a 10 year rye this year. Uh, it is out. It is in stores. I have, I think at the time of this recording, Maybe one bottle left at Wachusett Wine and Spirits. Uh, if you're out there listening and you want to email me, message me uh, if you're interested in it. Uh, I can't talk about price on the Wachusett podcast, but I can talk about it here. We're selling it for $150. Is it worth it? <clears throat> Rarity, uh, the price of everything going up. Oh, and by the way, while I'm on this rant about pricing, um, just kind of close Michter's 10. Yeah, there's one bottle left. It's 150. Email me, message me. The price of some of these releases is getting absolutely fucking ridiculous. Uh, and I'm sorry. I'm going to take a shot at you. Luxco, Luxro, uh, Rebel, 10-year, single barrel. What the fuck? Three years ago, this was one of my absolute favorite whiskeys was incredible they were cherry picking some amazing barrels you know there's no secret my love affair with the brand rebel rebel 100 i have turned into a beast in my store i sell more of it than any other store in the state god knows we sell more nips of it than anybody in the state because they're a staff favorite and what was always great about rebel 100 is it's still 20 dollars a bottle and on the business end i'm still making a good profit even at 20 bucks that being said, like three years ago, Michter's 10-year, uh, not Michter's 10-year, Rebel 10-year was 60 bucks on the shelf. Perfect. Great value. Amazing whiskey. And then it went up to 80 bucks on the shelf. And when I tasted it against the barrel pick I did, here's the difference. Rebel 10-year single barrel, 100 proof. My store pick, Rebel 5-year, 107 proof. Five years older. Didn't make it five years better. It actually didn't even hold a candle to mine. And I've blind tasted plenty of people on those releases against my store pick. My store pick killed it. But it went up 25 bucks. This year, Rebel, 10-year, single barrel, 
$110 on the shelf. Are you fucking kidding me? That whiskey was great when it was 60 bucks. It was barely good at 85. I don't care what is in the bottle at 110. There is no excuse to go up $50 in three years. You're not importing the stuff. It's the same relationship you've always had with sourcing the barrels. <clears throat> the whiskey was already made, so it's not like new cost of goods. It's the, you know, it's the same whiskey you sourced last year. It didn't get that much more expensive. And not for nothing, but Luxco has a little bit more coin in its pocket after being bought by MGP last year. So there's just no excuse for Rebel Tenure to be over $100 when three years ago it was $60. Simply, flat out, no excuse. Sorry, Luxro. Uh, and I have some friends there. I am not promoting this product. It's on my shelf. If you guys want to pay that kind of money for this, that's on you. Um, obviously, when I'm at work and I'm talking about it on the podcast there, yeah, I need to sell it. But here, in full honesty and full disclosure, do not waste your fucking money on that bottle. It's time that we as consumers kind of push back a little and go, what is happening out there? Like, I get that bourbon is hot and everybody wants it. <clears throat> and there's a there's a huge demand and there's a fake supply shortage. But cut the shit. Um, look at scotch. We were all drinking whiskey drinkers before everybody got trendy and started drinking whiskey again. Those of us, the core whiskey drinkers who were drinking scotch years ago, when that stuff started to get too expensive, we went, fuck it. Let's go back home. You know, they're making good whiskey in America. And now here we are in America and the price just keeps climbing and climbing and climbing. I don't get it. I mean, I get there are other things in post-COVID world and supply chain shortages and fuel costs and all that. But this price increase, these things are getting absolutely outrageous. And again, you're not putting it on a boat, shipping it across the Atlantic, getting it through port, paying international tariffs. None of that stuff applies. And yet we're the ones on the, the, the ground, the consumers who are getting hammered with it. Uh, and I get to see it from both angles because I'm a retailer and I have to sell it, you know, and I have to look in your eyes when you go like, what is wrong with that? But I'm also a consumer. I love to buy the stuff. You know, a lot of the stuff that I get, these aren't free samples. I buy them myself. So yeah, it, there's just no excuse. And it's time as consumers, we push back. And I know I've got some of you out there who are like me. I'm not chasing fucking unicorns anymore. I'm looking for, you know, interesting whiskeys. The stuff that Johnny Pinkglass brought me, you know, Traverse City. And my friend Jay reached out to me because his wife is from Michigan. And he's like, yeah, no, we go out there. Those are the unicorns I want to chase is getting something in another state that I can't get here. And that's what we need to do. Like a, a whole revolution of take your Kentucky owls and your chicken cocks and your cream of Kentuckys and you go be elitist and, and do whatever you want with it. But man, there's got to be somebody out there who's like, you know what? I just want to make good whiskey for good people to enjoy. Oh, you know who does that? Heaven fucking Hill. Evan Williams. There you go. Jim Beam. Jim Beam Black. Great whiskeys you can drink every day. Not everything has to be special. Evan Williams bottled in bond. Perfect. You know, 
let's go back to drinking those brands. They're affordable, they're accessible, and every now and then when you save your pennies, yeah, you pay up for something that's that's good and special. Um, but yeah, this stuff is getting absolutely ridiculous. Uh, speaking of getting ridiculous, uh, this is more sort of a business thing, but there's a category in my world called RTDs, ready-to-drink, pre-made cocktails. This is also something that has gotten out of hand Um on a business end of it, people just talk about, you know, it's growing, it's growing, it's growing. I read all these, you know, liquor store marketing. There's a magazine called Market Watch, and I read it every day. And uh, there's a newsletter I get called the Shankin Report that I get every day. And every day I am reading about new RTDs. So in the last week, since the last time we spoke, you know, like this, I read about... A brand called Rancho La Gloria, who is developing a ranch water. Uh, a company called Midnight Moon that has a peach tea ready to drink. Sammy Hagar, on Friday, I read about Sammy's Beach Bar. A whole line of rum, ready to drink cocktails. There was nothing on Monday, but, you know, Monday was a holiday, too. Tuesday, Trogues is doing a Raza Squeeze. So this is a gluten-free, ready to drink that they're marketing as an alternative to beer, cider, seltzer, vodka sodas, hard iced teas, hard lemonades. We're just throwing stuff at the wall. And then Wednesday this week, I read that Diageo, which is one of the largest liquor you know, companies in the world, uh, they've paired with Vita Coco, the coconut water, to make ready-to-drink cocktails with Captain Morgan. That's one, two, three, four, five in the last week. I'm getting inundated with five pitches a week of this stuff, and everybody's getting into it. Uh, Simply, the Simply Lemonade, they're putting out NRTD. Uh, there's a hard Mountain Dew that's coming down the pipeline. Uh, you know, brands like Crown Royal and Tanqueray and Bombay Sapphire, Malibu, Bacardi, they've all taken their, their shot at it. Um, Fabrizia that we carry... All these ranch water, tequila sodas, canteen, cantina. It's absolutely insane. And for you guys as consumers, I don't know, you know, I look at it like there's just too much of it. And the category's grown because stores are buying more of it, but customers aren't buying more of it because I think you guys are smart. Yeah, they work if you're at a concert venue, if you're going tailgating, but really on an everyday basis, nobody seems to be buying this stuff. And I think it's because you guys are smarter then these companies think you are. They just think like, oh my God, uh, Crown Royal, we'll put out you know, a Crown and Coke pre-made cocktail because customers are too stupid to make their own fucking Crown and Coke. It boggles my mind why a consumer would buy a pre-made Crown and Coke when it's cheaper to just buy a handle of Crown and a two liter of Coke and make them the way you want them. Like I said, unless you're going to you know, see a concert, outdoor venue, you're going to do a little tailgating ahead of time. You don't want to drive home with a half-empty bottle of Crown. I get that. But this is something that is just on the business end. And maybe this is just a rant where you guys are like, what is he talking about? This is insane. But it's it's another area. We're just we're getting flooded and inundated. And if you're wondering, like, how does that affect me? Well, if Diageo is putting all their money into developing Vitacoco and Captain Morgan, that developed money has to come from somewhere, you know, so from the sales of Captain Morgan, they're taking some of those profits and they're putting it into research and development to develop a pre-made cocktail because you're too stupid to go home and make the cocktail yourself. 
that money is coming from somewhere. And you know where it's coming from? Us. Much like I ramble about in the podcast and the body of it, about, you know, wooden tubes on bottles and metal tins around bottles and cages around bottles and bottles that come in boxes. Get rid of the exterior packaging. There's got to be another revolution here of telling these guys of, you know, Pernod Ricard putting out absolute ready to drink cocktails and Jameson ready to drink cocktails. The money to develop these products is coming from somewhere and it's not coming from their profits. It's coming from you. When you buy Jameson, you know, when that price goes up a buck, that extra buck you're paying for Jameson is going in their pockets to develop a product that basically says you're too dumb to make your own Jameson and ginger ale. We're going to do it for you. There's got to be a, a spiritual revolution here. Uh, I promise I am leading the charge. I am pushing back on these guys every day when they come into my store and pitch me on this stuff. But this stuff is absolutely ridiculous. And if anything, maybe our revolt is we just don't buy those RTDs and we just go about buying our bottle of Jameson and some ginger ale, our bottle of Crown Royal and some Coke, our bottle of Bombay Sapphire and some tonic water and not buy the pre-made stuff. It's it's lazy, and these guys are paying for it out of the money you're giving them. It, it just doesn't make a, a lot of sense to me. It's it's something else that's that's going to stop, and I am at the forefront of this charge. I'm taking on these guys every day and, and just telling them to, to cut the shit because you know what? The cost of everything is going up, and you know we still want to consume your products, guys, but you're making it harder for us to do so. You know, when you're raising the cost to do all this other nonsense, make RTDs, make external packaging, uh, print up stupid posters or, you know, why does Jameson make beer koozies? I, all this stuff boggles the mind. And ultimately, this product could be delivered to the consumer a whole lot cheaper if these guys were just better and cared more about their customers. All right, uh, positive stuff. The few minutes I have left here before I let you get into my ramblings about Sherry. On a cultural side, I just finished watching The Offer on Paramount+. Plus. If you are a fan of old school Hollywood, uh, if you're a fan of The Godfather, if you're a fan of Miles Teller, and if once you watch this show, my God, you'll be a fan of Miles Teller. He's absolutely incredible. Uh, it's a show all about making the movie The Godfather. And if you've seen The Godfather, you know how great of a movie it is. It's it's a timeless classic. Um, and some of the info I knew, but a ton of the info I didn't know. It's the story told through the eyes or at least through the recollections of the producer, Al Ruddy, uh, who before that was the guy who developed the show Hogan's Heroes. Uh, after that, he was the guy responsible for uh, The Longest Yard and a bunch of other movies. And it's just it's a great sort of look at what old time movie making was on an actual studio lot. The way it was done, the acting is unbelievable. Uh, Giovanni, Giovanni Ribisi is so good. Um as the head of the Colombo family, it's just, it's incredible the weight he put on and to get to see how Brando really created that Godfather character. It's just a fascinating look at the movie. And 
you know, I, I should even kind of back that up a little bit because everybody says like it's a show about making the Godfather. It it is in so many ways, but it's a show about to me so much more than that of how Hollywood worked. Uh, the original dreamers who believed in movie magic and actors telling a story, uh, which is a different time period than we're in now, you know, where everything is action and CGI and, you know, it's just a different way of conveying emotion. Whereas then it was actors through facial expressions and truly getting into character. And it's about that. And it's about how movies really got made back in those days. There's very little that actually has to do with filming the Godfather, mostly, uh, you know, some of the set stuff that they were setting up. And it talks about the trip to go to Italy to film those scenes and shows a little bit on that. But more so, it's a lot of the behind the scenes stuff, uh, the involvement with, you know, the New York City mob, uh, Frank Sinatra's impact on the picture. It's just it's a great show start to finish. Not a lot of action. It's not something that makes you jump off the couch. It's just it's true drama made in the way that those old school movies were made with just great writing, great dialogue, you know, great acting it's just it's a fantastic piece of work that i will be surprised if somebody does not get an award especially you know everybody talks about how great miles teller was but to me the true sort of acting brilliance is giovanni uh Rubisi. to see sort of the weight that he put on um because he's always been a skinny dude he looks big and bulky and yeah you can tell though and whether he's wearing a fat suit where he did the Brando trick where he stuffed uh, tissues in his cheeks or whatever. But the acting job by Rabisi is is the killer. So, yeah, if you're looking for a new series to binge and you've got uh, Paramount Plus, that's my recommendation for the week. Um, <laughs> and just to kind of go on a little ramp there, like, you know, we all got rid of cable because cable was too expensive. And we're like, oh, you know, we'll just, you know, get a fire stick and then we'll get Netflix for 10 bucks a month. And then, you know, we get Showtime Plus for 14 bucks a month. And then we've got Paramount Plus for 10 bucks a month. And we've got Disney. And now all of a sudden, your Fire Stick and all your goddamn streaming services are more expensive than cable was. But you can't go back to cable because a lot of these great shows are now exclusively on streaming services. <laughs> so, yeah, the whole concept of streaming services also getting a little out of hand and uh, costing us a lot more money. All right, I'll let you guys get into the episode. Hope you guys enjoy it as much as I enjoyed making it. Uh, I start out with a little sort of discussion about what makes Sherry Sherry and how fascinating that is. And again, I could have gone much deeper and talked for hours about just Sherry. And then I get into the tasting of, you know, some spirits, Glendronic 12, uh, Virginia Distillery Courage and Con uh, Conviction, Ooh, uh, the Sherry Barrel. Uh, what else? Minor case rye. And then I kind of come back for bonus tasting in the end. But in sort of full disclosure, I was probably a little off the rails uh, by that point. But still a lot of fun. I'm not editing it, not cutting it out. I'm going to leave it in there because it's real and it's raw and it's me. So as always, if you like what I'm doing here, join the family. Get on the journey. Go to the podcast page. Click that follow button. Give it a five-star rating and share it out on your social media. Let your friends know who are into the same kind of stuff that we're into. 
there's a podcast that they need to listen to. Um, follow on Facebook and Instagram. You guys know the deal. I'm always putting up pictures of things that I'm drinking. Uh, Sunday morning vinyl has become kind of been becoming a, a thing every week of different albums that I'm listening to. I love vinyl on a Sunday morning. There's just something kind of peaceful about Bloody Marys, vinyl music, the crackling of it. It's just, it's beautiful. It sets me at ease. Um, but that's all stuff that I'm really listening and things that I'm really drinking. Uh, and you can leave reviews and comments on both Facebook and Instagram. Um, yeah. And as always, if there's something that I've tried here in this episode, and I mention it in the episode, I have extra of everything that I've tried. Uh, if you've got a sample that you're curious as to my opinion of, or if you want to come here, hang out, geek out about movies, music, TV shows, whatever, and drink some cool spirits, you can email me at thespiritguide89 at gmail.com. Thank you, guys. As always, I am humbled. Um by your visits and your comments uh, and just everything you guys do that keep me going week after week. Uh, yeah, it's great to be on this journey and it's great to have other people on this journey with me. Uh, enjoy the episode. We'll talk to you soon. Cheers. All right, guys. Um, this is... Uh... <laughs> You know, I get myself into these rabbit holes and I think like, oh, I'll just do this episode and this will be fun. And <coughs> excuse me. And, you know, I, I know this stuff and it'll be easy to talk about. And then I'm like, you know, I'm going to do a little bit of research and just dig in and see. And then I find myself in, in a fucking rabbit hole of just unbelievably interesting things. And. I guess before we get into it, what I'm talking about today is you know, a, a few years ago, I fell in love with Sherry. No, it's it's not a pretty girl. It's a wine. And, you know, over the last few years, we've started to see more and more of this in sort of the American side. But Sherry finishing, aging in Sherry barrels has been a big part of Scotch whiskey's history for, you know, well over a hundred years. And now we're starting to see it in America with some bourbons. We're starting to see it back in Ireland with some great Irish whiskeys. We're starting to see it in rum. And this whole concept of barrel finishing and barrel aging has really expanded our spirits landscape. You know, and you know, I talked to you know a lot of you guys out there. I was just with Corey a couple days ago and we were talking about it and he is a sucker for anything when he sees rum finish on the label you know we were drinking uh barrel spirits uh dovetail the other day and you know he's a sucker for rum and then rum finish on that bottle he's all in uh, i know some of you guys when you see port finish on the bottle you're all in and i did a, a store pick with virginia distillery that was you know a port finish that is just, it's the store pick I'm maybe the most proud of because it's absolutely amazing. But when I see Sherry finish, uh, and I've told this story a couple of times when, you know, you guys have heard some of these podcasts that I put out, you know, the, the pitch and the product where they come in and, you know, they're trying to sell me something and, and they're talking about the product. And whenever, you know, I, I always say like my job is, you know, 
The salesman's job is to to say yes. My job is to say no. And somewhere in the middle, every now and then we compromise, and that's how products get in the store. And sometimes you just, you know, you don't have the money in the budget. You don't have the space on the shelf. You know, I'll go through the pitch. I love tasting everything because at least then I know, you know, what it is, how it tastes. And if somebody's looking for it, I know where to get it. But sometimes I have my mind set up before that pitch even starts. Like, I just don't have space for anything but I'm just going to taste. And then they go, well, we've got this one other thing. It's, it's finished in sherry barrels. And I go, you motherfucker, you got me. I'm going to taste it. And nine times out of 10, I'm going to bring it into the store because I'm just a sucker for it. And nine times out of 10, it's, it's something delicious. So I I guess I, I, you know, I was just going to taste through a couple of samples of things that I've got in bottles that I've got that are sherry finished or sherry aged, but I wanted to kind of do a little deeper dive once I get into this. First of all, uh, talk really quickly about the concept of finishing in aging. Uh, I've talked about this before. Aging is, you know, you take whatever it is, whether it's scotch or rum or tequila or Irish whiskey and you put it in, say, a sherry barrel for years and years and years. That's aging in sherry barrels or port barrels or rum barrels or sauternes barrels or whatever kind of barrels you're aging it in. Finishing usually means that it's spent, say, five years, ten years in its original aging barrel, maybe a used bourbon barrel, and that's what they use to age it in. And then they dump that barrel and they put that liquid into another barrel for a shorter period of time. Now, typically when you see an age statement on it, if it says 12 years finished in sherry barrels, the 12 years usually indicates the original barrel it was aged. Usually the finishing period is not included in that age statement. Uh, And we were talking about it the other day. You know, Corey asked a great question of how long is the finish time? The finish time really is, it's, uh, you know, a master blender, a master distiller, a brand's own discretion. When I talked to Dave Peckerel years ago uh, out at Hill Rock, he was aging something in port barrels, and he said his philosophy was he just liked to, to finish it for a couple of weeks. You know, he just wanted to smooth out the rough edges of the whiskey that he was finishing in the port barrels. He didn't really want to pick up a lot of the flavor just to kind of soften the edges. When I talked to Amanda down at Virginia Distillery, uh, our I think our port finish was done for like nine months. So that's done more with the intent of not only smoothing out the rough edges, but adding another layer of flavor and complexity. So when you see finished in sherry barrels, you don't always know what you're getting. Like, are you going to get big sort of sherry bomb flavor or are you just getting kind of a soft nuance uh, flavor to kind of round out the edges and I know people love them you know people are still looking for McCallan we sell a lot of Glendronic and you know some of the ones that I'm tasting today um, you know they're they're sherry finished and and, you know I see my customers going after them and again I you know I I talk to you guys and and I know you guys like a lot of the same things that I do but it it kind of brought the question to my mind like do we know what sherry is Um, has anybody actually gone that extra step and tasted 
Sherry on its own. Um, and so that's where I wanted to kind of start this journey into, you know, my love affair with a wine named Sherry. So yeah, that's sort of the first point. Sherry is a wine. It's one of the oldest styles of wine uh, in the world. It's been being made in, you know, what was then occupied by the Moors, but is now, you know, present day Spain, uh, going all the way back to the early 1200s. So from a historical perspective, yeah, this is a a very historical style of wine. Uh, It really sort of picks up global recognition, uh, you know, Sir Francis Drake, I want to say a couple hundred years later, uh, when he sort of invades Spain and, and conquers it, he starts bringing back these barrels of sherry to England. Uh, they, the British called them butts. They're sherry butts. They're bigger. They're just bigger barrels, uh, but they refer to them as butts. We kind of joke about it all the time at the store of like, you know, when people say like, oh, that's a butt ton or a butt load. That's not a joke. That's an actual unit of measurement. A butt is just a giant barrel uh, that was used for sherry. And they would use that for transport. And even to this day, a lot of things are, you know, sort of transported, you know, imported into this country in one larger vessel because it's easier on taxation purposes. But that really wasn't the deal back then. But they would ship these butts over to England. the British loved it. It became part of Shakespearean lore. Uh, all the great sort of explorers and travelers, Christopher Columbus, Magellan, these guys all drank and, and praised uh, sherry. And then when they got these barrels to England, you know, they weren't shipping the empty barrels back to Spain. So that's kind of how the tradition, you know, they would stay there in the United Kingdom and Scotch whiskey and Irish whiskey would get aged in these sherry casks. It's a tradition that kind of went away with Irish whiskey, but there's a lot of things uh, that kind of killed a lot of traditions with Irish whiskey over the years. Uh, but Scotch whiskey really did hold on to that tradition of aging their whiskey in these used sherry barrels. It's not quite like that today. Um, so what is sherry? Sherry is what we call a fortified wine. So that means that it's a wine and I guess to backtrack, Jesus, this is such a rabbit hole. I, I, hopefully some of you guys are like, wow, this is really interesting. And some of you guys are probably like, just get to the fucking point. I'll get there, I promise. So in in the spirits world, there's basically two types of spirits. There's distilled spirits and there's fermented spirits. Your vodkas, your gins, your whiskeys, your rums, your tequilas, those are all distilled. So they're basically you create like a sugar sauce and then you cook that it creates alcohol and you go through the whole process of distilling it's more from cooking fermented beverages your beer your wine basically you take a sugar source like grape juice and you add yeast to it the yeast eats the sugar that creates alcohol so it's fermented and that's kind of how you have to do distillation is you actually have to ferment something to create those lower levels of alcohol. And then you cook it and that cooking kind of brings it up. Basically, to make whiskey, you have to start making beer. Uh, to make brandy and cognac, you have to start by making wine first. So sherry is a wine and it runs the palate from bone dry 
super sweet. And it gets that in a couple of different ways. Your drier sherries, uh, which we'll taste in the back half of this episode, uh, things like a Tio Pepe uh, Fino, is a drier sherry. So what they do to fortify it is you make the wine and then you add spirit to it. And what the spirit does is it pretty much keeps it from fermenting. Things can't ferment when it hits a certain alcohol point. So with your drier sherries, they make the wine, they instantly add spirit to it. And that raises the alcohol content up to about 18%. Then they pitch the yeast and the yeast will eat all the sugar. But because the alcohol content is so high, it's not converting that sugar to alcohol. It's just eating the sugar and kind of boiling it off or, you know, uh, they call it, you know, like um, alcohol farts. They just sort of bubble up and, and that kind of goes away. So that's how they get those sherries to be really, really dry. Now, there's three areas in sort of southwestern Spain that they can make sherry. Uh, the biggest one is a region called Jerez, uh, J-E-R-E-Z. And that's kind of the main one. There's two other towns that I can't really pronounce, so I'm not going to try to butcher. Um but they form what's called the Sherry Triangle. And one of those sort of points in the triangle is closer to the ocean. The two driest styles of Sherry, which are Fino and Manzanilla, the only real difference is one comes from one town, the other comes from another town. And Manzanillas come from the town that's located closer to the ocean. So you get that sort of ocean air influence on Manzanillas where it actually forms a slight salt crust over these open air fermentation tanks. Uh, and you get a little bit of that salinity in the sherry. These are gorgeous, delicious drinks. Uh, I, I can't recommend enough going out and, and sort of getting in the rabbit hole and trying these. And then you get into the ones that most of us in the spirits world are really already aware of, which is Oloroso and Pedro Jimenez. By the way, there's only three grapes used to make sherry. Uh, one is called Palomino, one is called Moscatel, and one is called Pedro Jimenez. So Pedro Jimenez is the only style of sherry that's named after the grape that's used to make it. And when you pour like a Fino, uh, uh, a Monteado, a Manzanilla, they're pretty clear. They look like white wine, and all sherry grapes are white. But when we get to Oloroso and PX... Pretty much what happens is, you know, they make the wine, they put the yeast in, that fermentation is happening, it ferments up to about 7-8% alcohol, and then they douse it with that Spanish brandy, stops the fermentation, leaves the alcohol content between like 15 and 18%, and then they just leave them in these open air fermenting tanks, and they oxidize over time. So if you guys saw the picture I put up on Instagram the other night, with that glass of wine next to that uh, beautiful, beautiful Gonzalez Bayesh, uh Pedro Jimenez sherry, it's jet black. I mean, it looks like coffee in the glass. That's not from the wood. Um, that's not from being a red wine. That is strictly from oxidation. So think of it like if you cut an apple with a metal knife and you just left that out for a day and it starts to turn brown. Over time, it starts to turn black. So we kind of got a little idea of how it's made, but we're missing one important step. Why is Pedro Jimenez so sweet? 
So Pedro Jimenez, the grape, the way they harvest it, uh, and this might be kind of geeky for some, but if you guys are out there and you know a little bit about wine, you understand this process because there are some other wines that use this process. They harvest them late. So by leaving the grapes on the vine a little bit longer, they build up a little bit more sugar content. They also hit a point where like the sugar starts to eat away at all the water. There's something called noble rot that kind of sucks the water out of them. So they kind of look almost a little raisiny on the vines by the time they finally harvest them. Then they harvest them and they lay the grapes out on straw mats to dry in the sun for a couple of weeks, which is, I don't know if you know, but that's how they make raisins. So if you can picture now this big raisin, you think like, how do they get liquid out of that? They don't get a lot. You know, what you get is this richly concentrated, all the sugars, all the flavors, all that oxidation. They press those raisins. That's the liquid that they're getting to start making Pedro Jimenez. So now we've talked about the grapes. We've talked about the wine, a little bit of the history. Now we get to the key sort of factor of how is sherry aged? Sherry is aged in what's known as a Solera system. So if you picture a stack of barrels, one on top of each other going up six high, the bottom barrel is the oldest wine. The next one up is a little younger. The next one up is a little younger than that, so forth, so on. When they go to bottle Sherry, they pull it from that bottom barrel. By law, it's 30% that they take out of that barrel. That barrel never, ever empties. Take 30% out to bottle. And then from the barrel above it, they take 30% of that and they use that to fill off the bottom barrel. And then the barrel above that fills the barrel. So the younger spirit or the younger wine is always getting added to the next oldest wine. And in theory, that bottom barrel might have wine in it that's up to 100 years old. So when you're tasting, you know, in Oloroso, a Pedro Jimenez, you could be tasting 30, 40, 50, 75, 100-year-old wine. You are truly tasting history, um, <clears throat> and you get it in the, the complex layers of flavor. Now, granted, these wines are sweet, uh, and I'm going to do a tasting of them again when we come back. I'll start with sherry and then kind of go through some of the sherry finishes. What's important to kind of pull out of that information, though, is those barrels never empty. So when we see sherry cask aged, finished in Oloroso sherry barrels, finished in PX barrels, where do those barrels come from? If they're not emptying them, and remember, they're only making sherry in three towns in Spain. It's in the southwest corner of Spain. It, there's just not there's not that many uh, wineries that are making sherry <clears throat> to satisfy the global demand for all these sherry barrels to age all these spirits in. So what happens is there's something called sherry cask seasoning. <coughs> Man, I apologize. I get the case of the coughs this morning. <sighs> so sherry seasoning or seasoned cask is actually a brand name in Spain. They kind of form this consortium that, you know, when you get something that is sherry cast age, there's a guarantee there. Um, 
you know, Sherry as a region is a DO, what they call a denomination of origin, which means that, you know, it's a unique product on a global scale, sort of like bourbon is in America, champagne is in France, tequila is in Mexico, Irish whiskey is in Ireland. Sherry can only be produced in the Sherry region. And the Sherry region is the oldest DO in Spain, again, to kind of give a sense of the historic significance of this wine. So, you know, very rarely are you going to get an actual Solera barrel filled with scotch, rum, tequila, anything like that, because they don't empty those barrels. They use them basically until there's not much left to use of them. But from all my research, it's rare that they ever just discard a barrel from their Solera system. Uh, it's part of the whole process in the history of making sherry. So they've come up with this sherry seasoning. Uh, I think there's an actual term that they use for it. I'm going to consult my Google machine here. Um, but yeah, basically, they've come up with you know a way to just season these barrels. So... It's called seasoning. And what they do is they take a barrel and they put sherry in it. They season the barrel for a year. They let the, the wine kind of get into the wood. Um, and then however long that barrel is seasoned, and I think that it's a custom order. And so, again, there's a lot of sort of factors that go into the flavoring of a sherry-finished spirit of not only how long was that barrel seasoned before it got to the brand that is finishing their spirit in it, but then how long was it finished in that seasoned barrel? So there's a couple of different factors there, but basically they take the sherry, they use it to season a barrel. They sell that barrel to McAllen's McConnell's uh, cotton and reed. These are some sort of foreshadowing of things we're going to taste uh, in the back half here. And then they take that sherry and they put it in another barrel and they season that barrel. And I'm sure that that first use seasoning, that barrel warrants a higher price point than the second or third barrel that that sherry is used to season it. And then basically what happens is after that sherry has kind of run its course and it's been used to season, you know, four or five barrels, they take that sherry and they make it into vinegar because it's not part of the Solera system. It's only been used to season the barrel. So again, the quality, uh, the first use, when you see that first use sherry barrel, that's pretty much what it means is they were the first one in the seasoning line. And so it's going to be a richer flavor. Um, but yeah, you're pretty much not going to see an actual sherry butt being used to finish whiskey. And not only that, but again, sherry barrels that they use to age sherry, are twice the size at least of bourbon barrels. So if you are aging in a sherry butt, an actual PX sherry butt, you probably wouldn't get any flavor because there's more liquid than there's surface area to even come in contact with. So it's a, it's a funny sort of dynamic of there's this romanticism of you're aging it in this ultra historic wine barrel and yet you're not actually aging it in an ultra-historic wine barrel. 
uh, you're aging it in a or finishing it in a season barrel. But that process is actually better for the flavor profile in the aging of the spirit. All right. I think I've got all the sort of root information down. I'm going to take a break. I'm going to line up my bottles and we're going to taste through. I'm going to start with a dry sherry just to kind of let you guys know what a dry sherry tastes like. Uh, And then I'm going to jump right into my PX sherry. And then I'm going to taste some fun stuff. Glendronic 12, cotton and reed, minor case rye. And what is at this point of the year, my number two whiskey of the year, the McConnell's uh, Irish whiskey sherry finish. All great offerings. Uh, I'm going to take a break, line these up, and uh, I'll be right back for you. All right, so in true uh, in true rich fashion here, uh, what my my old producer Katrina uh, used to always harp on me for, which was being prepared. I'm totally unprepared for this. Uh, like I said, I've I've got my bottles in front of me. I've got my glasses in front of me. If you guys could see uh, sort of my studio table here. I have every possible shape and size of glass. I have no idea how I'm going to pair these up or what I'm even going to drink. I've probably got about seven <laughs> samples of sherry finish stuff. Uh, one, I'll be completely off the fucking rails if I do all seven of those. And two, I don't know that I have enough time to get them in before you guys just start to go like, this guy just rambles and rambles. So um, before I get into starting the tasting, I want to correct something that I said a little bit earlier. Um as I realized in my head of how I explained how Fino and Manzanilla sherries are made. Sometimes you, you hit the, the pause button and just like, what, what did you say? That's not even true. Um, clearly my brain was a little scrambled. And so to better clarify how Finos and Manzanillas are made, they are, you know, wine, like I said, they're fermented up to about 7%. Uh, and then they're fortified with brandy up to, you know, like 15 to 16%. And then what happens is when they put them in the tank, they leave a whole ton of space. And that's when this flora, as it's known, comes in and it actually covers the whole top of the tank. And what that flora does, that's the natural occurring yeast in the air. So it eats away at the sugars, but because the alcohol is too high you can't ferment anything and two it prevents uh oxidation from happening because it actually seals it in sort of like nature's saran wrap so that's sort of the clarification so anybody who was listening and it was like ah i get you you were wrong uh i corrected myself and two i always welcome any of you guys out there to write me uh you know stop by the store comment on facebook and instagram and be like hey you're wrong And I will investigate your points. And if you're right and I'm wrong, I love it. I love being wrong because it means it gives me an opportunity to learn something. Uh, So if I'm wrong about anything and any podcast, please point it out. It's the only way any of us really learn. And it's amazing how many things we go through life believing are the right thing uh, until somebody points it out otherwise. So the first thing that I'm going to taste and talk about really quickly is sort of the lead into our sherry finished spirits is actual sherry itself. 
and I have two bottles here. I have the driest sherry in front of me, and I have the sweetest sherry here in front of me. Uh, I'm going to post a picture of both of these side by side uh, with the wine in a glass so you can see the absolute difference between these. This is Tio Pepe um, Fino Sherry. Uh, the Palomino is listed right in the front. That's the grape used for it uh, from Jerez. Um, again, spelled Jerez, but it's actually Jerez. And uh, yeah, this is the driest of all the sherries. Kind of crystal clear, a little bit of yellowish tint to it. Kind of like a light white wine would have. On the nose, it's very minerally, um, nutty. Yeah, there's a nice kind of little funkiness to it that I like. All right, here we go. <clears throat> and in this one, I really get the taste of, you know, a white wine. Uh, and any of you wine drinkers, I'm not talking about like Chardonnay, Pinot Grigio. If you're like me and you like white wine and you like sort of funky, obscure, esoteric grapes, you know, from odd regions in France or in Spain or in Austria. It's somewhere in like a like a nutty. Ooh, that finish is so. It, the wine up front is a little like you know an Austrian Grüner Wendliner, um, and then it's got like this. If you remember the old bitter honey candies, it's got sort of that nuttiness and honey on the back end. Absolutely delicious, bone dry. Again, great in cocktails. It's also great for cooking. Um, and these bottles are half bottles, 375 milliliters, under 20 bucks. Uh, it makes it a nice, easy investment to make. And you know, like if you're steaming mussels or clams, or you're making any sort of seafood saute with shellfish, this is a perfect wine for those recipes. Now I'm going to taste the polar opposite end. And there are some... Obviously, some styles of sherry in between, uh, but we're going from the driest to the sweetest. Uh, and this is the Gonzalez Bayesh uh, Nectar Pedro Jimenez. Uh, and here's some quick sort of technical. This is actually fermented to 7%. It's fortified to 15%. And then the average age of this particular uh, PX is about eight years in that Solera system before it's bottled. Uh, certainly not the oldest PX I've had, uh, but definitely enough time. Again, in the glass, this looks jet black. You know, it looks like like if you had an iced coffee and you left it out. Uh, you know, or when you finish the iced coffee and there's that little bit left in the bottom. This is what that looks like. On the nose, man, it just smells like... Kind of like almost Christmassy, like raisiny, figgy, molasses, cocoa. Oh, man, it's just, this is decadence. Mm. And on the palate, it's rich. It's heavy. It's definitely sweet, but not cloying sweet. It's It's got a decadence to it. Uh, in a brightness, you know, like I said, it's got that sort of raisiny, molassiny, um, figgy sort of flavor. But then in the back, there's like a, a nuttiness and then like a like a lemon zest and an orange zest kind of 
bite in the back that balances it. This is absolute decadence. Again, these are short pours, you know, something you would have with coffee after dinner, something with dessert, but also something you'd have with some, you know, great Spanish cheeses. All right, so we've got the foundation down. We've tasted our sherries, the driest to the sweetest. And now I'm going to go through and taste some spirits. And I've tasted some sherry finished spirits and some sherry aged spirits on this podcast before. So when I was going through the list of things that I have, I was trying to do things that we haven't really talked about here. Um, And the first one that I'm going to taste, which is really where the tradition of aging in sherry barrels begins. And I'm starting with the Glendronic 12 year. Uh, This is a a brand that I'm, I'm very familiar with. Because of my very friendly relationship with some people at Brown Foreman, which is the company that owns Old Forester and Jack Daniels, but they also own Glendronic. Uh, it's a brand that maybe, you know, if you were drinking scotch 15, 20 years ago, you might not have been aware of, but certainly in the last five to seven years, their stuff is, is making a big comeback in the American market. Uh, still affordable. When I, man, I just got some McAllen Sherry Finish in 12 year. It's like 90 fucking dollars right now. It's insane. It's absolutely insane the price that some of these things are taking. Um, you know, Glen Morangi is still a great one that's finished in sherry barrels uh, and it's a little bit more affordable. Uh, Dalmore is way, way up there. All the McAllens, I just saw a McAllen, I think 18 for like $350. It's just, it's madness. Uh, so I'm looking for things that are good that, you know, haven't gotten into that sort of pretentious supply demand kind of game that they're playing in scotch. And this is one that just hits the mark for me. And, you know, we talked in the first half about sort of the, the difference of aging and finishing. And, you know, I was talking to Corey again today and, and to Peter Thomas, and we were talking about like just how amazing it is you know, the concept of seasoning a sherry cask. And when you see like first fill Oloroso sherry, that means that, you know, they built the the cask the size of a bourbon barrel. They filled it up with Oloroso sherry. They seasoned it. They let it soak into the wood, you know, for maybe up to a year, depending on how long that contract calls for. Then they dump it. They sell that barrel and they put that same sherry into another barrel and then into another barrel until it's kind of lost its ability to season the barrel. They make vinegar out of it. I've already talked about this, but for you to get that first fill and then be the blender and the distiller and the brand's discretion to say like, all right, how long are we going to age this in this first fill? Do we want to smooth the round edges? Do we want to add layers of flavor? It's fascinating to me how you blend these barrels in, in the, you know, the degree that you get it seasoned to the the time you spend in there. The whole thing is just amazing. And it really should make you kind of step back and look at some of these brands in awe of not the master distiller. Um, and I don't want to get too far away from the tasting here. But, you know, when I met Jeff Duckhorn from Redwood Empire a while back, who is considered to be the master distiller there, he said, you know, I want to be considered the master blender. And Derek, who is the owner of Redwood Empire, said to him, you know, why would you want to do that? Like the, you know, the glory is in like the master distiller position. He said, yeah, but being the master blender, that's where the magic happens. 
and the the truth of it is is most of your distilling is all done by computer like there's one guy i've been to kentucky i've watched the guy sitting in the room you know other than the person who physically pitches the yeast or you know physically adds the ingredients all the distilling is done by computers for the most part the master blender the person who decides how much of this barrel, how much of that barrel, what percentage of this sherry finish, what percentage of this, and then blends them all together to make these magic products. The master blender, that should be the hero to everybody, not the master distiller. Um, you know, the master distiller comes up with the ideas, but the person who's actually doing the blending and the tasting, that's the true rock star in our whiskey world. So, Glendronic, 12-year, and it's aged for 12 years, not finished. This is aged in a combination of Oloroso and Dom PX barrels. So, you know, again, we talked about aging and finishing. This has spent its whole 12 years in those two types of barrels. And then after 12 years, you know, somebody is blending a certain percentage of Oloroso and a certain percentage of PX and to get this signature flavor bottled at 86 proof. I want to say it's right around that $60 mark, which sadly is, you know, the going rate for 12 year scotch, unless you're McAllen, which is, you know, the Buffalo trace of Scotland, I guess. As far as, you know, drinking your own Kool-Aid. All right. So great color on this. Great nose, and I'm thinking because, you know, it spent 12 years in those barrels, that sherry is not really swishing around. This is more smoothing out the edges, integration of flavors, um, but it's not going to be like just drinking straight sherry. All right, let's see what we got. I mean, right away, the first thing you notice when you sip this Glendronic is the texture. It's rich. It's creamy, soft, pillowy. You know, I'm getting the scotch flavor, you know, that sort of cereal, heather, honey flowers, um, you know, just sort of green. And I'm also getting like really subtle, like this is very like stylish and elegant. Um, you know, I like my sherry finishes to be really decadent and almost dessertish. I love this too, because of the style, the elegance, the balance, just how well integrated all the flavors of this are, you know, you're getting little notes of, of cocoa and sort of dark fruits and red fruits. Yeah. Glendronic 12, absolute winner uh it's not on allocation it's not really hard to find i keep it in stock all the time if you're out of town you know you should be able to find it it's not yeah it's not hiding it's usually not behind the counter by the way if you can get your hands on glendronic 21 or the portwood finish those are just unbelievable as well and i just sold a bottle to a friend of mine of the Glendronic single barrel 29. I'm hoping, I'm hoping, Bob, if you're out there listening, I'm hoping to get a little sample taste of that. If I do, 
I'm going to share that with you, at least in the review sense. Uh, I don't imagine I'm going to get a big enough sample to invite 10 of you over to <laughs> share it, but I promise I will share my thoughts and my review on that one if I do get that sample back. All right. Sample number two. Where am I going with this? You know what? This only seems right. I started with Glendronic, which is a single malt scotch. I am now going to continue to Virginia Distillery, my friend Amanda Beckwith. Um, and, you know, they make an American single malt. They're making it right here in America. Uh, yeah, where else would you make an American single malt? The redundancy. They're, they're making it 100% malted barley. So when people come up to me and they ask me about this whiskey and they go like, oh, so they're making scotch here in America. No, they're not making scotch here in America. They're making American single malt. So is it bourbon? No, it's American single malt. Well, what is it? Again, it's American single malt, but it's 100% malted barley. Now, admittedly, American single malts are a lot pricier than your average bourbons. Why? Because the cost of barley in the United States is three times the cost of corn. So it really is based on price of goods. You know, we're not talking about import taxes or anything like that. They are certainly not trying to levy themselves as a luxury brand. The pricing is pretty typically based on cost of goods. So, you know, it's a fair price, even though it is a little bit pricier. But again, you can get these. And anybody who thinks like American single malt, that's weird. Go back and listen to some of the other shows that I've done. Uh, you know, single malt whiskey is the original style of whiskey that, you know, settlers from Ireland and Scotland came here knowing how to make. Um, and the reality of it is, is there are more distilleries in the United States making single malt whiskey than there are in Scotland. Uh, kind of wrap your brain around that. So the base model for Virginia Distillery is what they call courage and conviction. So that's their base model. And it's a blend of their American single malt that's finished in bourbon barrels, their American single malt that's finished in wine barrels, and their American single malt that's finished in sherry barrels. They blend those three types together, and that's what gives you the courage and conviction. And I've talked about it on another podcast about what the breakdown is. But last year they made available, you could get just the bourbon cask version of Courage and Conviction, just the wine cask, which they call the cuvee cask, and just the sherry. And when I talk to them, and these are these people are great friends of mine, um, we always talk about how everybody's got a different favorite. Mine has always been the sherry. They're using American single malt that's aged in Fino sherry barrels. Oloroso barrels and PX barrels aged for a minimum of three years. And again, when you say aged for three years, that doesn't, you know, the finish time or whatever else you're doing kind of tags on to the end of that, but you don't get to really call it that. Minimum of three years, bottled at 92 proof, made in Virginia. And again, my friend Amanda is the master blender, uh, not the chemist who's actually making the distillate. She's the one blending the barrels, tasting the barrels and making sure that it tastes the way it does when it gets to your glass. And right away on the nose, you're getting all that sort of nutty, you know, raisiny, like Christmas fruitcake kind of nose there. Yeah, just dark, like fruit compote. 
That is so just beautiful, rich, creamy. It's creamier than the Glendronic, without a doubt. And I like the fact that it's at 92 proof, not because I'm a proof chaser and I, you know, I want to get drunk. The the 92 proof, that little bit of burn from the alcohol is what keeps all the sweetness in check. If this was 86 proof, that sweetness would become overwhelming. So that little sting, that little burn that the alcohol gives it is what gives this whiskey balance. Um, and that balance, uh, this is this is beautiful. I would drink this sitting around a campfire. I would just sip this sitting on the porch, have it with a cigar, have it with friends. Obviously, that's the best way to enjoy any sort of spirit is with friends. This stuff is fantastic. Please don't sleep on Virginia Distillery. Uh, go out, expand your palate beyond just bourbon. Uh, there are so many other great styles of whiskey, and there are so many other great styles of whiskey that are being made here in America. And you know, maybe that little hint of sweetness on the back end, uh, you know, of this whiskey will help to kind of introduce some people to it. Um, yeah, this is an absolute winner. Yeah, and just to sort of review, Glendronic, uh, is it good? Yes. Is it worth the money? Yes. There's a lot of side of conversation. It's gorgeous packaging. They did a great, great job on it. Uh, the Virginia Distilling, is it good? Yes. Is it worth the money? Once you understand what goes into it, not only the cost of malted barley, you know, but securing sherry barrels and, you know, Oloroso and, and PX and Fino barrels, like to get all that stuff, to get it over here from Spain, all those things have a cost. So, yeah, it's worth every single penny. And the bottle is uh, elegant. And uh, I've been going back and forth lately on how I feel about tubes. You know, um, the Glendronic comes in like a cardboard tube. And the Virginia Distillery comes in a, a metal tube. And I got to be honest with these guys. You know, like, it makes it look attractive on the shelf. It stands out. It pops, which is, you know it's a word I hate to hear said, but you know, it's something we talk about all the time about, you know, where something is in the shelf and the label and does it pop when a customer looks at it. That being said, as a consumer, I hate them because you buy it. Now you've got this metal tube that you're really not going to keep around. It takes a lot more space. So you're buying it just to bring it home and throw it in the trash. You know, all right, maybe one you save and you make a, a piggy bank out of, but how many of those, you know, cardboard tubes, metal tubes, and the worst one is the Glen Morangi ones. I don't know if anybody out there has seen them where they come in these like fucking metal cages or something. They're just terrible. Um, I would rather you drop the price of the product by $2 and get rid of the goddamn tube or the metal tube or the cage or whatever it is you're packaging that in. You know, even your Glenn Levitts and your Ardbegs that are in a box, just get rid of the exterior packaging that have nothing to do with the product and lower the price of the product. Everybody wins. You don't have to secure that tin. You don't have to secure that cardboard. I don't have to pay for it just to throw it out. Sorry, I digress and go on a rant. But really, if you guys out there can help me on this and let's like start a petition or, or revolt or something, start putting some postings up of just end the exterior packaging. It's wasteful environmentally. It's a waste of money for the distillery. It's a waste of money and it takes up our trash. 
let's just, man, I, somewhere in the middle of this, I, I think I'm going to try to start a movement to get rid of exterior packaging. It's terrible. It's just an absolute waste. Whew, looks like I've been rambling for a bit. All right, I got two more that I want to get to. Uh, I'm going to skip over the McConnell because I just did this on the Wachusett Wine and Spirits podcast this week. The McConnell Irish Whiskey Sherry Finish, which to me is my number two whiskey of the year to date so far. Um, so if you want to hear my thoughts on that, go over to the Wachusett Wine and Spirits podcast page. Uh, and I just did my top 10 of the year so far and talked about McConnell's. And actually, Corey made a pretty compelling case after we went off uh, the air of McConnell, maybe the number one whiskey of the year. It's sort of a sleeper pick. So the next sherry finish that I'm going to taste that needs to get some love out there in the world that I'm in love with, and I know some of you guys are because we've talked about it. This is the Minor Case Rye. So Minor Case Rye is made by Limestone Branch Distillery. Those are the people that make Yellowstone. When Yellowstone Branch was originally founded back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, it was formed and and started by members of the Beam family and the Dant family. Minor Case Beam uh, was involved in the very beginning. He always wanted to make rye. He never got a chance to make rye because of prohibition back in... Uh, 2017, uh, well, they revived the brands around 2010 with, again, members of the Beam family and the Dant family. 2017, they put this out. Uh, they revived the Minor Case name and created a rye in his honor. This is what we call a Kentucky rye mash bill, so barely legal. Uh, 51% rye, 45% corn, 4% malted barley. It's actually two-year MGP juice bottled at 90 proof, and it is finished for eight months in an American sherry-style wine uh, from a winery called Myers. So they make a sherry-style. It can't actually be sherry because it's not from Spain, but same sort of concept. Uh, it's their cream sherry, which is actually a blend of Oloroso and PX. And right away in the nose, you kind of get, you know, MGP, sometimes that 95.5 rye gets a little too dilly for a lot of us. And I like it, but after you taste like five or six of them, you know, and every brand seems to use that mash bill. They start to kind of taste alike. I like this one because of the 51% rye and then the high corn. So it keeps things in balance a little bit more. And the the sherry influence is definitely, definitely there. Um, And you can still get that rye spice all the way through. Yeah, I, I love, love this whiskey. I, you know, and I don't feel like this one has all the same sort of richness and decadence that some of the other whiskeys that, you know, I've tasted here today and that I've tasted in the past. This is, you know, again, it's also not Spanish sherry. It's it's American Spanish style sherry. So it's rounding off the the edges 
it's giving it a nice little sweetness. There's some, you know, hints of like dark fruit and nuttiness and citrus there. And they balance out the rye spice really, really nicely. And at 90 proof, this is a winner. And at under 40 bucks, like this is just an easy, easy pickup. Um, is it good? Yes. Is it worth the money? Hands down. Does the bottle start a conversation? My goodness. This is one of the cooler bottles that looks like, you know, it belongs on the back bar of a Prohibition era saloon. It's, uh, you know, looking at it, it's kind of a square bottle, flat, uh, raised lettering, you know, with the minor case, the, the label that says straight rye whiskey, sherry cask finished, nice script. Very well done. Uh, yeah, this looks like it should be on a, a prohibition bar or, you know, it looks like, you know, when you know, your grandfather passes away and you have to go to his house and and clean out all the stuff. And he's got this bar in the basement of, you know, stuff because he didn't drink. This is very similar to sort of my family story. You know, my grandfather didn't really drink, but there was booze in the house from, you know, years and years of like buy something from when company comes over. And we would find bottles after he passed that were, you know, 30, 40 years old and these weird sort of decorative bottles. This looks like the kind of bottle that I would have found going through my grandfather's liquor collection that he would have bought 40 years ago and never really touched. Great package, great product, great price. Winner on all three fronts. All right. I'm going to take a quick break. I'm going to come back because there's one more that I wanted to get to um, as a sort of bonus tasting. So, yeah, give me a second. I'm going to go refill my water, come back, and uh, I'll wrap up with you guys. All right, I'm back, and I'll be honest. I wanted to come back and, and do one more because I just needed an excuse to drink something amazing. And I was going to do one other one. I was actually going to taste the Cotton and Reed PX rum, which is just, man, that stuff is outstanding for 35 bucks. It's If you tasted it, you would think it was a scotch. Uh, it's got so much sherry flavor, uh, but it would be redundant for me to do. So if you guys are curious about that one, scroll back on the podcast page. Uh, to one of the pitch and product episodes that I did where I did cotton and reed rum. All the rums were amazing, uh, but we get to taste the PX. And I forget which order they're in on the podcast, whether I did Breckenridge first or cotton and reed. But when I met with the representative from Breckenridge, who also does a Dom PX finished whiskey, I had him taste <laughs> the cotton and reed rum and he was blown away, and it was kind of a funny moment when he kind of admitted that our $35, or not our, but the Cotton and Reed $35 rum was better than his $60 PX finished whiskey. Um, but I thought that this would be a good excuse, because I I'm, I know some of you guys out there are like this, where you get your hands on a really nice bottle of spirit that, you know, costs you a significant amount of money that makes it, you know, takes it out of the daily drinker sort of segment of your bottle collection, you know, because one, it's when you start to get a 125 to $150 and above kind of bottle, like 
It's not something you're drinking every night. You're savoring. Um, in fact, I have a lock cabinet in my kitchen that my really good stuff I put in there. And I don't really lock it. And I don't think that I'm going to be wrestling with it. But I think I've mentioned this before. It's like the two-foot-high fence around your yard. Like Anybody could just walk over it. But that two-foot-high fence is enough to deter most people from walking on your front lawn. That unlocked lock rack in my kitchen where I put this stuff, just the fact that it's in that rack somehow lets my brain know even after a couple of glasses that eh, it's in there. I'm not going to open that up and go after it. And this is one of those bottles. Um, the problem with that, like I've mentioned before, is when everything becomes special, you stop enjoying it and it doesn't become special anymore. So I wanted to find an excuse to pull this bottle out and drink it. And this is El Mayor Extra Añejo Tequila. Uh, this is their special release from, I think, two years ago. So I believe last year's was a rum release, and this year's is going to be a port release. So this is Extra Añejo, which means three years or more. And this is aged for 38 months in sherry casks. I don't know what type of sherry casks. I don't particularly care. If you're a tequila fan and you don't already have one of these bottles, there is one left at Wachusett Wine and Spirits as of the day of this release. This, you know, I get to taste this alongside Tia's Lorana, which is widely considered to be one of the absolute best tequilas uh, in the tequila world. Pound for pound, dollar for dollar. This is right there with it. And for what we're talking about today with sherry aging and sherry finishing. Oh, man. What a change of gears to go from, you know, single malt to single malt to rye to tequila. And underneath, I get that sort of funky vegetal tequila smell. But the color on this is gorgeous. And again, 38 months in sherry barrels. Not finished, aged the whole time in sherry barrels. And honestly, I'm going to say that these are probably not even PX or Oloroso. It might be like a cream sherry, um, something with a little less sweetness to it, but those same sort of nutty, dark fruit characters. And yeah, I just wanted an excuse to taste this. 80 proof. Perfect. This is also why it's dangerous is because you can drink a lot of this really, really easy. Mm. Mm. Soft, sweet around the edges. Like there's almost like, this is going to sound really weird, but like those, those Girl Scout cookies that have like the lemon powder on them. There's like a hint of like that shortbread cookie and that like lemon powder, but then there's like a, like a nuttiness to it. Like if those cookies had like little nuts in them, but then right through the middle, you're getting all that great sort of tequila funk and that hint of smokiness and pepperiness. I love El Mayor, uh, you know, comes from my friends at Luxco. This is, I know people love the Tia's Lorana. And I really liked it a lot myself, but this is my absolute favorite bottle of tequila of all time. And 
Again, I just wanted an excuse uh, to drink it. So we're going to wrap it from there. Thank you guys, as always, for indulging me on this journey. Hopefully, you learned a little something. Hopefully, I see some of you guys and, you know, and you're asking like, hey, where do you keep the sherry? I'm kind of curious to see where that goes. You know, and this can be a fun thing of buying a bottle of PX sherry or a bottle of Oloroso sherry, using it in place of vermouth to make Manhattans, you know, just sort of mixing it in and and doing sort of a, a version of finishing it yourself, you know, and just drinking it on your own. It's delicious. And again, sort of broaden your horizons widen your palate. So many interesting things out there to explore, you know, and hopefully some of these spirits kind of sounded interesting to you and it kind of inspires you. Almost all of these things that I have here, I have extra of. So if there's any of you out there who are like, Hey, that sounded really good. I'd like to try that before I invest in it. Shoot me an email. I'll get you a sample. Again, as I always say, if you're over 21, you live in the area, I have extra. So let me know that you'd like to try something. I will get you a sample. And as always, if you like what's going on here, join the family, you know, go to that podcast page, click the follow button, give it a five-star rating and share it out on your social media. Let your friends know who are into the same things that we are, that there's a podcast out there for them to listen to and to be a part of. Uh, Follow on Facebook and Instagram. I'm always posting things that I'm drinking, that I'm listening to. All that stuff that I'm authentically trying um, every day. No no sort of dummy bottles. These aren't bottles that I borrow and and take pictures of. Uh, And if I'm not actually tasting it, I try to note that in the Instagram post uh, that it's something that I might have my hands on, but not necessarily that I'm tasting. But other than that, if you see it up there, that means I have tasted it and tried it. You can leave comments and reviews of the podcast on both of those forums. And as always, for everything else, if you've got a sample you're curious as to my opinion of, uh, if there's anything I've tasted here that you want to try, or if you want to just come here, hang out in the studio, geek out about movies, music, books, whatever, and drink some cool stuff, email me at thespiritguide89 at gmail.com. Lots of exciting stuff coming up in the next couple of weeks. Some cool interviews. Uh, I'm just going to tease it and leave it at that. And uh, yeah, hopefully you guys enjoyed. And we'll talk to you soon. Cheers. Yay!